In our industry, everything changes so quickly in terms of consumption. I often sort of imagine myself like casting around for something that's going to be stable over time that I can at least sort of say, well, that won't change very much. So I can sort of rely on that. And this, I think, signal strength is one of those things. Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Ella Sagar and I'm delighted to be joined by Rich Kirk, Chief Strategy Officer at Essence Mediacom UK, to get our teeth into some meaty media planning and strategy topics today. Rich, thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So this is your second time on the pod. You previously came on to chat to my editor, Omar Oaks, about right reach. And if any of you missed that, please go and check it out. It's a great listen. But today we're going to talk about something slightly different and your latest piece for us in Strategy Leaders, which was centered on some new research on signal strength and how it's linked to great planning and strategy. Uh, First off, I loved how you started the piece with how God would make a brief in uh, biblical times. Forgive me, listeners, I'm going to read it out because I loved it so much. God's brief to his agency, get high net worth individuals in the Middle East to visit our new Bethlehem resort and working farm by making it a famous regional destination for thought leaders. Unlimited heavenly powers available to make the right idea happen. Campaign must go live on the 24th of December at midnight and run until early Jan. KPIs, mass awareness, and minimum three new guest bookings. Um, so, Rich, now from this, you say God knew something media planners do not think about enough. What do you mean by that? And can we, let's explore that a bit more. Well, yeah, I mean, the the idea that it's referring to, obviously, is um, the idea of putting a giant, brand new celestial body right above your your chosen your chosen location, which probably wasn't the first answer that you would think of if you were approaching that as a pure media planner. If you want to get some thought leaders to trek miles and miles and miles on camels to visit your your hotel, then you're going to have to do something pretty special. And and I think that's because we're releasing this epiphany, which is obviously the time when lots of people think about that particular part of the Bible story. It's, It's a great example of of not thinking in terms of efficiency about the message, but in terms of thinking about stature and what the what the actual chosen media for communication actually actually says about what it is that you're trying to advertise. And I think if you look over like the sort of last long time now, but the sort of trend has been to grow spend in environments like the social feed and search results both of which are excellent channels for various reasons. But if you think about it from a point of view of what is the decision to appear in this place saying about my brand, it becomes a little harder to explain. There's a lot of very rational reasons why you would appear there. But in terms of like, you know, it doesn't, what, what does that choice actually communicate about your brand? And does that choice even matter? These are the kind of things that we were thinking about, myself and Ian Murray and Andrew Tenzer from First Year Bubble, who I did the research with. People often, like I said, everyone says the media is the message, it's a well-known phrase, but that's not been, or not a lot of people have thought about trying to quantify if that's true, and if so, to what degree, and uh, sort of the starting point, really. And that sort of Bible story kind of, uh, I quite like it because when you think about it, the, uh, the ad format that's chosen this giant star it's not even it's just a star isn't it it's like there's no creative 
there's not a message attached to it. It doesn't have writing in neon lights on it or anything like that. It's literally just by doing something so spectacular, people instantly attach a level of importance to what it is that you're trying to communicate. I think that medium is the message. Yeah, it does sound great as a phrase, but trying to delve into what does that actually mean in a day-to-day and how do consumers see different media channels is a really interesting thing that I think media planners might need to look at in a slightly different way than maybe they have been doing previously. So you talk in the research about signal strength. Why, we've kind of touched on this a bit, but can you explain what a bit more signal strength, what's, what makes good signal strength? The reason why we use signal strength is because all of this research that we've done is born out of the theory of costly signaling. The most famous example of costly signaling that you might have heard of is the peacock and its tail feathers. So Charles Darwin hated peacocks because if you think about the world in purely Darwinian terms, the peacock shouldn't exist. Having a really heavy, cumbersome set of tail feathers should have disadvantaged the peacock to the point where it had become extinct or over time it evolved into something less likely to get eaten basically. But the peacock survives and is the exception to that sort of Darwinist way of thinking about nature because the very fact that it can survive with such an incredible set of tail feathers is this amazing signal to potential mates that it is is basically an incredible specimen and it's incredibleness, you know, it's it's, it's ability is likely to be passed out. Uh, So it's a costly signal in that, you know, it's got cumbersome and heavy tail feathers every single day, but it's when it comes to what matters, that signal stands that peacock in in good stead. And what we set out to do was try and show in a kind of real-world environment or as close to a real-world environment as we could simulate, the same thing happens in advertising through the media that you choose. Now, there was a lot of sort of dusty college-based lab-based research about this sort of behavioral science from way back in the day. But Ian Ian and Andrew worked with Thinkbox in 2020 to actually bring this into the real world and prove that it exists through their original paper, Signaling Success, where they showed that different channels were able to exert a different level of kind of power on consumer perception so that if you stripped away everything about a brand and just controlled for everything apart from the media choice the brand made, knowing the choice that the brand had made in terms of what media it was going to buy led consumers to have very different levels of brand perception about the brand. And that is what we call signal strength, the ability to which the media channel is able to change people's perception about the brand when you control for every other characteristic, such as brand size, the creative message, the amount of money being spent overall, et cetera. And so with that in mind, are there, I mean, you can't really look at it in a sort of binary way of this is, but you can look at it on a sort of scale of this has stronger signal strength than than that. So Andrew's original paper from 2020 focused on five channels, TV, news, radio, online video, and paid social media advertising. But the research was done during lockdown, 
and so like cinema and our phone weren't included because of the weirdness of the times that we're in and also if you're a if you're being really nitpicky you could probably say i'm not really that prepared to believe research from 2020 because it's such an odd period of time i'd like to see that research replicated which is exactly what we've done in late 2023 we've taken the research we've used the exact same methodology that was used in 2020 and the only difference is that we've expanded the number of channels that have been looked at significantly so our study looked at tv cinema news brands radio podcasts paid social advertising advertising via content creators online video sites and at home and what was the most surprising finding for you or the kind of biggest shift 2020 to 2023? I think there's like there's anything unexpected. There's probably four big findings that came out of the research that you would want sort of looking at for the first time to understand. The first is that we replicated the results of 2020. I think that's really important because what it shows is that using the same experiment, but in very different time periods with very different societal conditions in place, and obviously with different respondents, we have been able to show that signal strength comes through in the answers again. There is significant differences in the ability of channels to change people's brand perception. Um, and the ordering of the channels is broadly similar. We also saw that for the channels that appeared in both studies, the response scores were almost identical. So the first point is that replicated this research for the second time and it's you know the results are very very similar which i think shows that signal strength is an enduring thing that that you can sort of uh you can say is present in all kind of impacts that are taking place against consumers at the moment the second thing is that kind of found again that signal strength is quite significantly informed by consumers perception of how much the advertising costs to a brand. We looked at three relationships. The relationship between people's estimates of what the media costs and the actual costs. The relationship between the estimate of what the media costs and the signal strength, and then the, the actual cost of the media and the signal strength. And what we found was that People are okay at predicting how much media costs. They kind of know that TV costs a lot. For instance, an advert in a Facebook feed doesn't cost very much. But they really struggle to like get the channels in the right order, and they kind of struggle in the middle. Um, they all think that influencer marketing costs tons of money. The second thing is there is a really strong relationship between what people think media costs and the signal strength that they attribute to the media. But then finally... There is very little relationship at all between the actual cost of media and the signal strength. And that's the opportunity. If you can understand the signaling strength of the media, then you can start to understand what media is overpriced and what media is underpriced. And yeah, so those two things are massive. Third thing was that there was very little variance for some channels, despite the fact that we expanded some of the prompts. So. Online video in 2020, we just said it's online video, e.g. YouTube. In 2023, we said it's online video, e.g. YouTube and TikTok. And the response was exactly the same, despite us loading in all that time spent with media to the question, which would indicate that time spent with media does not 
influence people's view of how like, special the message is. Just because you're putting your message into a place where people are spending more time doesn't mean that the media is going to sort of have any more kind of, it's not going to give your campaign an X factor or anything like that. And then finally, I think the big one was that the, uh, the, uh, there's not a huge amount of difference across the age groups. So you would expect maybe based on time spent that young people would think all the signal strength is in channels like online video and social, but that's not true. Um, broadly speaking, whether you're young or old or somewhere in the middle, you tend to see the same amount of signal strength from coming through for all of the channels. There's a couple of exceptions. Younger people generally ascribe a little bit more signal strength to everything because younger people are more open to the suggestion of advertising. Uh, and younger people really see cinema as a very, very high stature media compared to other age groups. But outside of that, there's a huge amount of things. That's fascinating. I think I find the demographics and the cost parts of those the most interesting. But I wonder, we were talking about this a few weeks ago in terms of younger and older demographics and how receptive they are to ads. Can you explain a bit more about that, that younger people are a bit more open to ads? Is that just because they're not as cynical? They haven't, you know, <laughs> been exposed to ads for as long? Uh, I'm not, I, I wouldn't want to suggest why. Well, I think that cynicism is, that's probably my favourite explanation of the explanations that I've heard, but there's double multiple things going on there. But yes, generally speaking, like the evidence that I've seen would suggest that younger people are much more open to the suggestion of advertising. You know, the questions that we asked people once they'd entered into the survey, basically the way it works is that you give them a fake brand and you describe it as a particular type of company. So in the experiment we ran, we described it as a retail or supermarket brand, and we described it as a telco brand. It's a very generic description that, you know, the kind of thing that you would write if you were asked to write a generic description of, of, of a telco or retail. But then the question is, the brand is about to launch via a three-month campaign in, and then it will just select one media to pose to the respondent and this test cells for every single for me in, in the survey. And then we go on to ask them questions about whether they think the company is financially, how financially strong it is, how much confidence do you think they have in the products, the quality of the products, will lots of people use it? Is it going to be a popular product? Is it going to be well-known? Will people like you use that product? And overall, how much would you trust the messages in the advertising? And so we ask those questions and generally speaking on all of them, you're more likely to get a slightly more positive response from younger groups and older groups, but not hugely. And, and the, the increase level of positivity from the young people tends to be the same kind of proportion for every single channel, which would indicate this kind of universal younger people being more open to the suggestion of advertising. I saw similar stuff when I used to work at publicists in, they have a database called Touchpoints, very confusingly not the same as the IP Touchpoints database. No, I was uh, going to say. <laughs> but yeah, very different. But again, that database uh, looks at how much media across paid owned and owned influence people. And every time you cut that database, it was the case that all media was always more influential on the younger demographics than the older ones. Yeah, this idea that younger people are more likely to respond to the sort of the suggestion of advertising, I've seen it replicated in multiple places. 
And I think there's some people in the industry who are often pushing back on the idea of advertising being obsessed with youth and saying it's a bad habit of advertisers to be obsessed with youth, which I think sometimes is a valid criticism, but there are a couple of decent reasons why you might focus on a younger audience with your region you created, and that is that that you are slightly more likely to see a certainly a brand response, obviously, in terms of sales, depends on the, the pricing and economics because younger people don't have as much disposable income. There's a, there's a longer lifetime value opportunity as well because of younger people. This episode of the Media Leader podcast was edited by our production partner, Trisonic. And if you're looking for podcast production support, we highly recommend them. Find them at trisonic.co.uk. I wonder with the looping back to the signal strength, if we talk about trust and signal strength, so would you say like trust is a key component if there's like an equation for signal strength? What are the sort of key parts of the equation or the, the recipe for that? Yeah, so I think signal strength, there's two things that probably inform signal strength. And that is the first very clearly from the evidence that we've got is people's perception of how much the advertising costs. And then the second is people's, I don't even people's, our whole societal consumption of media. You don't have to read a newspaper to think that a newspaper is authoritative. You might just have to get on a train and see a business person read a newspaper. And that sort of signals to you it's a relatively authoritative piece of media. Similarly, there's a reason why as seen on TV has always been something that's being used in our society because it, it it says it's been on television, therefore it has a degree of legitimacy to it. And the fact that as seen on TV is a thing in our society would you know, I think that contributes to people's subconscious valuation that they put on TV. It's people's perception of the cost of the media and people's collective experience of seeing the media being consumed and consuming the media themselves. And for that reason, I think signal strength is very likely to be an enduring thing that doesn't change much. We saw that it hardly changed at all from 2020 to 2023, but I would imagine that it will be something. But in our industry, everything changes so quickly in terms of consumption. I often imagine myself like casting around for something that's going to be stable over time that I can at least sort of say, well, that won't change very much. So I can sort of rely on that. And this, I think, signal strength is one of those things sort of that one constant kind of that truth that you can go back to. Yeah. I would imagine that if it were to challenge, it would have to be generationally, mm-hmm. like it's supposed to go very quickly. Yeah. And I was wondering about this, that how do you communicate these kind of findings to clients or how does this translate into a campaign? Uh, when you're, you've got this amazing research, then how do you take that and explain it to, to your clients? There's like two sides to that. So explaining it to clients is it's just putting in the hard jobs, really, of trying to get them interested in it via a sort of short conversation or email and then really putting the effort into sort of saying, how will this apply to your brand? Is these are the kind of campaigns that we've done that we think communicate stature? One of the things that clients have been very interested in is that we've compared the, the results of this experiment in terms of the signal strength per channel with the um, long-term and short-term ROI numbers we have in our econometrics norms database uh, since MediaCon. And what we've been able to show is that uh, signal strength doesn't 
have a particularly strong relationship to short-term ROIs by a channel, but it does have a much stronger relationship with long-term ROI. And it also has a very strong relationship with the kind of norms we have for halo effects from one media to other medias. And so by couching the research in the context of outcomes, that has proved to be quite successful in terms of attracting client attention, as opposed to it just being a think piece on its own. The second question about how would we use it in planning? So this is where I get kind of like really nerdy, but also excited because uh, I came on the podcast last year and talked about right reach, which was all about trying to close the gap between reach and impact. And this work is the exact same thing, really. It's all about trying to understand why reach doesn't line up to impact as well as it used to. and trying to think about the factors that explain that gap. Now in our industry, we're very good at the physical explanations for why reach and impact are different. So you can get robust numbers about viewability, about dwell time, about pixels on screen, about attention, which is a really, really rapidly developing area of measurement. But there's very little research in the, these are all, so those are all physical types of uh, measurement. They're all measuring the physical impact of the media. You know, I, attention is literally a camera looking at your eyeballs and where you're looking. No one's really looked at the mental subconscious effect the media choice has on the recipient of the advertising. And that's what this research does in an Andrew's piece from 2020 and then this follow-up piece that we've done with them. It looks to sort of that mental processing side of the impact. And the way that we can apply it in planning is to put the physical data and the mental data together. So we produce these two by twos, which has the signal strength as the y-axis and the eyes on attention delivered by the channel as the x-axis. And then we can plot the channels on that map and we can turn it into a bubble chart and communicate reach and price as well. And the brilliant thing about this is for the first time ever, you're demonstrating to clients a map of the media landscape and you're showcasing impact both in physical and mental terms. So it's like a holistic measure of impact, which uh, I don't know if this is an overclaim or not, but I've not seen a huge amount of research that looks to to do that. So we're in terms of how it affects our planning, it's we, we're developing for the first time this unique view of the landscape, which very quickly highlights media that is undervalued and media that's overvalued. And then you can, if you think about forecasting reach and price a couple of years in advance, you can build a map of what the media landscape will look like in 24 months and say, look, in 24 months, we think this media potentially would be very attractive as an investment and this media is going to be less less attractive as an investment. And therefore, you need to start thinking now about how you're going to shift your plan. So that, that's a lot more long-term than just the one campaign and seeing what the best channel is. There are lots of different bits that you can feed into it to keep developing, if I'm understanding right. Yeah. If you wanted to do a, 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 a revised plan tomorrow that was took into account this attention data and the signal data, you could do that by taking your kind of reach curves and then factoring them down by both metrics to produce an adjusted reach curve, which you would then assume better represented effective reach than 
the original curve you had, which was a traditional reach curve. And a lot of the attention vendors are starting to talk about attention adjusted reach curves, which is basically that methodology, but you're just adjusting the reach curve by more than simply the physical attention. You're also trying to take into account the mental impact or the sort of, uh, yeah, yeah, the mental impact that the media choice will have as well. And that mental impact, is that like the memory encoding and that kind of thing? That is yeah, it's, top- the, yeah. Well, it's the signal strength, isn't it? So it's the, it's the way, it's the power of the media to communicate something positive about the brand. But a good example is that on an attention basis, you know, a YouTube 30 second connected television impression, the new format that YouTube are offering, on an attention basis, that's nearly as good as a 30-second TV adding BVOD, that they're starting to be in the realms of equivalent. So if you were attention planning, the attention thing would just say the YouTube one's cheaper, so buy that. And then brought from an attention point of view, there's not a huge amount to choose between them. But when you factor in signal strength as well, you'll notice that being on a broadcaster even if it's BVOD and not linear TV, the fact that it's a broadcaster channel means that the signal strength is significantly higher than it would be on YouTube. So there's something to, there's something to take away there. Mm, yeah, so can, it helps with those media choices. And it might, do you think it might throw up maybe channels that you hadn't considered, you know, if you're taking it on the signal strength and the cost basis, that there might be a surprise, undervalued sort of channel there that you think, oh, actually, didn't think of that. Yeah, so when we started, uh, so we can build those maps that I described previously, we can build those for different demographics now, because obviously the research was split by different demographics. And you do start to see that, uh, and then when you couple that with the targeted pricing cost for the same demographic, you start to see the channels that might be particularly attractive on an all adult basis maybe become slightly less attractive or become slightly more attractive when you get down to speaking to a particular audience. Mm-hmm. And that can be a little bit surprising. I suppose as well, the other thing that we're doing as a follow-up investigation is we all know that we've got to build brands in digital now because more and more of, of people's time spent is in digital. So how do you build a brand in that environment? I'm not sure. It'd be great to hear from people maybe listening to this, but there's not a huge amount of research into which digital formats are the best at shifting perceptions, especially not across the whole the digital landscape. Media owners might tell you which of the bits in their in their offering are the best, but generally speaking, there's no sort of cross media comparison of digital formats for the best brand building formats and. We're hoping to sort of take the theory of signal strength being about people's perception of price and then use that as a way to power a study of lots and lots of digital formats in a sort of on a questionnaire basis to try and get consumers to sort of give us a steer on where the best ramble of formats might be. And that's the kind of thing that I think is going to uncover those, uh, those undervalued formats that you were just talking about. You had it here first. That sounds like really interesting research to kind of because I suppose not every online banner or when you club together online video, it's not not all created equally, I guess. And they no, also but yeah, we'll be have our eyes peeled for that research when it comes out. Just to touch on quickly the the outcomes mm-hmm. element 
it's a conversation I think that's been happening a lot in media and advertising and a lot of the events that we do, like the future of TV advertising global, where it's certain media channels like TV feel like they have to focus more on outcomes because of that move to digital, where digital can give you all of these metrics and say how it's your campaigns created this or that outcome. Do you think that media needs to focus more on outcomes, like in planning or less? It's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because everyone says, oh, the media owners, the media reporting systems need to focus a lot more on outcomes. But whenever a media, I have a lot of sympathy with the media owner side of the equation here, because whenever media owners do try to produce stuff that, that indicates their channel produces great outcomes, everyone goes, well, of course you'd say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> and, and they seem to be a bit of a catch-22 situation. As far as that's concerned, I'm probably biased as, as everyone in the industry is biased one way or another. But I think that it's the job of agencies really to try and communicate to clients the nature of the payback different channels will deliver. And we're really lucky at Essence Media Con that we have such a massive database and such a well-maintained database of many, many, many econometric studies that allow us to produce norms and stuff like that. But yes, it, I think it's incumbent upon us to speak to clients about how long it takes for different channels to pay back the nature of the short-term payback and the long-term payback, and then try and match those industry-level findings up to the measurement methodology that the consumer's currently using. So it's the client's currently using. So if the client's currently using a very short-term attribution-based thing, not doing any MMM or whatever, then you've got to try and say, well, yeah, of course your results are like that because what you're seeing is is basically short-term ROI only and that matches up to our short-term ROI findings, but you're completely missing the longer term. And similarly, if they built an econometric model and that's maybe in the econometric model, they're trying to increase the cadence of the reporting, which a lot of clients are trying to do at the moment. To, because they're trying to use the econometrics to much more closely monitor performance in a cookie world, you know, sort of communicating that maybe in having such a high cadence MMM, they might be sacrificing an accurate view of the long term to get an up-to-date view of the short term and stuff. So, yeah, what, what we see, I think, is like this picture emerging that high attention, high signal strength formats tend to pay back, you know, the payback much better in the long and the bulk of the value they deliver is outside of standard short-term attribution window. And therefore, if a client is going to plan to buy some of these high stature, high attention formats, then they have to ready them for a potential drop-off in short-term ROI, mm-hmm. because obviously these formats and environments cost more to buy. Mm. So that it's a balancing act, really. It's so yeah, as with all media, I feel that it's like it's a balance. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a balancing act. You kind of want, like you say, like if you're on a tightrope. I suppose our job is to sort of, if they are on a tightrope, is to try and paint the picture of just how high up they are, or how much they can see if they look up and look out. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's it's all about balance. I suppose it's it's just knowing everything that you might be balancing as opposed to sort of just a small amount. Mm-hmm. To get the full picture. I, I was also wanting to chat about the, the Essence MediaCom kind of out there predictions that you guys have put out 
which I've really enjoyed seeing on LinkedIn. So you were talking to me about how they came about. Can you do you have a favorite prediction? Can you tell me a bit about how you kind of came up? I think there are eight of them. Yeah, we've got such a strong group of people again in the planning department. And James Parnham, who's our head of planning, was wanting to put together a look ahead piece that was slightly different to the group this year, next year, which gets written by Pete Scott Dawkins and Hesim Sunjali. There's a chap in our global team who got 250 trends decks and then built a AI chatbot and trained the chatbot just on these 250 trends decks. And then we were like asking it questions about what the trends were. And no matter what we did, no matter how much we prodded it, we couldn't get anything but a very generic set of trends out of it. And so we were sort of uh, myself, Jeff DeBurka, who was the joint chief strategy for alongside myself and, and James out of uh, plan, we were, we said, well, what are we going to do? Because it's all quite generic and it's not, it probably won't cut through so much advertising. And then we sort of decided that we would do some much more pointy predictions about specific things that we could hold ourselves accountable to through the year. And then we threw that challenge out to the planning community and, and we got eight really great ideas back, which we then put out on, on LinkedIn over the first couple of weeks this year. Do you have a favourite prediction? Oh, there's a favourite prediction that we've, that we've done. I think my favourite was our last one, which is that we think this year will be a really big year for ad funded programming, mm-hmm. in the, particularly in the UK market. The, the main broadcasters have all sort of come out publicly and said it's quite a tough time at the moment for linear TV, ad revenue, and as a result, some of them are starting to to slow down a little bit on commissioning. But at the same time, they still have a, um, this desire to build amazing TV shows. And from our point of view, we're increasingly seeing the power of advocacy and influencers and creators and, and the power of well-known people in public life but they're being generally executed in social media where the formats simply aren't as powerful as some of the legacy media like TV, et cetera. And then finally, we've also got brands who are increasingly wanting to be in the content instead of just buying spots around it. And you put all that together, you can see this marketplace where the TV companies are, are more incentivized than ever to talk about AFP with advertisers. Advertisers are keener than ever to do stuff like AFP and we know we've got a body of evidence that kind of content that's geared around influence as opposed to more traditional comms that present reasons to buy as as it was work really well if you can get them into really high attention high stature formats and for that reason P suddenly looks incredibly attractive not just to brands but also to commissioning editors and, and, and broadcasters and I think we'll see a lot more of it this year. Certainly in terms of deals getting done, obviously it takes a while for that stuff to go through the system and get made. But yes, I, I think the conditions are there to see a really big uptick in, in AFP. So I think that was probably my favourite prediction because mm. it's the one that I feel like has got a chance of going through. <laughs> uh, I see. Uh, hopefully we could get you on the podcast maybe next year and see if we can follow up. My last question is something we ask everybody on the podcast is why are you passionate about media? Rich. I really like being in advertising because advertising is like all about using the power of suggestions to move lots of people a little bit 
It's like the closest thing to Jedi mind tricks, I think, that you can do as a profession. And media fascinates me because it's that really great blend of art and science. There's a lot of science in media planning, which I like because I'm an analytical person, but there's still, you know, like this research shows, there's still lots and lots of really creative thinking required to push the envelope and get a new insight. So I love that kind of blend of creative thinking to come up with the analysis that you can do, but then the fact that ultimately it is a very analytical discipline. I think that it's probably the other way around on the creative side, which is that it's much more art and a little bit science on the creative side, whereas on our side it's a bit more. And I, I hope the other thing that I like about media is it's just so much more commercial. So I think, you know, most clients would agree that when it comes to the commerciality of, of understanding doing the work to understand how advertising is driving their business forward, generally speaking, it's it's the media side of the equation that's much more involved in that, much more on the numbers and stuff like that, which is, which I love about it. I always want to get divorced from that. Mm-hmm. So the art, the science, the commerce, the Jedi mind tricks, that sounds like a great combination. I think we're going to have to leave that okay. there. That's all we've got time for. But thanks so much for joining me, Rich. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.